Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome to episode 137 of Dial the Gate. And I did not brush my hair. Look at that. I look terrible. (sighs) My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for joining me. I have a wonderful guest uh, for our first episode today, Dr. Stuart Tyson-Smith, who was the Egyptology consultant assigned to the uh, uh, Stargate feature film, and Stargate Origins and The Mummy. You've, if you're into that genre, you've seen his work, and we're going to discuss that. He is joining us uh, for this episode to discuss the mythology, to discuss the language. He's responsible for putting those foreign words into those folks' mouths. But before uh, we get into all of that, if you like Stargate, and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal to me if you click that like button now. It makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will help the show continue to grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next uh, few weeks on the GateWorld.net YouTube channel. So as this is a live stream, uh, Dr. Smith is, is with us, so I'm going to be asking him uh, my questions for the first half of the episode. And then in the second half of the episode, we're going to turn that over to the community, who is uh, currently um, at youtube.com slash dialthegate, where you can submit questions, if you're watching live, uh, to Tracy and uh, Summer and my moderating team, uh, Anthony, everyone who's in there currently now, and they will organize those questions for me, and I will be sure to ask some of those questions to Dr. Smith. But until then, he's all mine. Dr. Stuart Tyson Smith, Egyptologist, UC Santa Barbara, is that correct? That's correct. Welcome, sir. How are you? Very well. Getting, looking forward to the summer, which is always nice. So. Absolutely. I, I can imagine so. Absolutely. <laughs> it is a thrill to have you. You are one of the original players responsible for helping to make not just the mythology, <clears throat> uh, the, 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 the content that we all know and love through Stargate work, the original content, but to make it real, as real <laughs> as, as possible. And I've just got to ask right off the top here. How do we know what they sounded like all those thousands of years ago? I mean, that's probably the most common question that you get. I wanted mm-hmm. to get that out of the way before asking about you, your past, why you got into this um, mm-hmm. this particular niche of, of all the things that you could be doing in academia. How do we know what they sounded like? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. I do get asked that a lot. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and it's the first thing to recognize is that ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, even though they look like picture writing, are actually primarily phonetic. So there are a few signs that are what we call determinatives uh, that are uh, 
picture signs, but they're usually combined with the spelling of a word. Uh, so for example, anything to do with thought or uh, sort of intellectual activities is a little papyrus scroll. Anything to do with emotion is a little person with a hand to their mouth. Like, are like ooh, you know, uh, and then, and similar kinds of things. Some of them are really literal, like the word for crocodile has a crocodile. And sometimes you can just use the hieroglyph for the crocodile, but more often it's actually spelt out. And so, the, but the writing system is really complicated and it only consists of consonants. So they didn't write down vowels um, and they, you have different, different groupings of consonants. So they're kind of like little word skeletons in a way. Um, and you, the, you have a combination of signs that, that are basically alphabetic. They stand for a single consonant, but again, no vowels, uh, or two consonants or three consonants, rarely four. And they, it, and they, so they combine them in this very complicated system. It's the total number of signs is about 700. So it's a little tricky. Um, the question of why they didn't have vowels is a good one. And the thinking is that in a way it wasn't really needed as much as in Indo-European languages, like, uh, you know, especially some of the Romance languages where you have, and Ger German and other languages where you have case markings. And there you need, and similar with English, when you have the conjugation of verbs, you can't really understand it unless you know what the vowels are, because they mark what the tense of the verb is, for example, whether it's a direct object and so on in, in other terms. But in Arabic and Hebrew, there also are no vowels. Uh, they use added diacritical marks, but the original scripts don't have vowels. And of course, I've worked in Egypt and Sudan, so I and traveled widely in the Middle East, so you know, I've talked with people and, and they tell me that, that uh, you know, when they're writing down Arabic, yeah, sometimes they put in those little diacritical marks for vowels. Sometimes just leave them out because the meaning's obvious. And so- Obvious to Egypt, that era. Exactly so. So for us reading ancient Egyptian, it's a pain. I would really love <laughs> to have the vowels. Um, and if you really want to understand how the language works, you need to be able to reconstruct those, those vowels and and the, the um, you know, syllabic structure of the language, which isn't obvious from these consonantal skeletons. So the way we do that is we have uh, a number of different lines of evidence. So we have those little consonant structures, uh, but there is a survival of ancient Egyptian that's lasted into modern times called Coptic. And that today it's no longer spoken, uh, except for a few people who wanna revive it, uh, but it's, uh, it's still used in the Coptic Christian church as a liturgical language, kind of like Latin in the Roman Catholic church. And so that maintained pronunciations from about the second century CE when uh, the language was written down using the, a modified Greek alphabet, uh, so that which included vowels. Uh, and that uh, gives us a pronunciation, kind of a baseline pronunciation from right at that time, including conjugations and everything else. But of course, that's a very different language after a thousand right. years, you know, to the language that was spoken, say, around the time of King Tut. And there we actually do have quite a lot of evidence for pronunciation from uh, the, uh, the transcription of ancient Egyptian names into cuneiform, which is that wedgie writing on clay tablets that was used in Mesopotamia. And so there's a, a whole bunch of diplomatic correspondence that survived, one in a big uh, archeological archive from uh, the city of Amarna in Egypt, and another from a place called Hattushas in uh, or Bagazkoy in modern times in Turkey, 
which is the archite of the Hittite Empire. And so the Egyptians exchanged these diplomatic texts, and we, there are a few other groups of these documents that have shown up. And they're normally written in a language called Akkadian, uh, which is uh, related distantly to sort of Arabic and, and Hebrew and the like. It's a Semitic language. Uh, but the names are trans, Egyptian names are transcribed. So I'll just give you one example of what happens when you do that. Please. Um, and so uh, the fame, name of the famous pharaoh Ramses or Ramesses, and that's how an Egypt, Egyptologist would normally pronounce it. Well, we know what we, we actually know how that name was pronounced because it's transcribed into these texts. And you have to fiddle a little bit with, with it. Cuneiform is actually a syllabary, so it includes vowel consonant combinations. So you've got to fuss with it a little bit. But by the time you can really work out what the original pronunciation was, and so the pronunciation of Ramses was originally Ri'amasesu. So very different from Ramses. Um, and Just a wee bit. Just a little bit, yeah. So Egyptologists, because you have to, you know, it, it takes a little bit of work to re do these reconstructions. What you can do is you, you, you get uh, a few words, like the name for the sun god, uh, which normally Egyptologists and most other people would pronounce Ra, which is Ryu. totally wrong. Yeah, exactly. It's Ryu in Stargate. Very good. Yeah. Um, and by the New Kingdom, uh, by the time of King Tut, it was Ria. Uh, because the W drops, the W is actually a consonant, that O sound at the end. Um, so that, that you can look at those consonantal changes. And I built all of that into Stargate. So I used some archaic pronunciations because I figured the name of the sun god might be sacred and might continue um, in a very old kind of archaic form. But other things I pulled in from Coptic um, and how you get some of the ch changes and transformations over time to create a a kind of interesting blend of, of uh, pronunciations rather than an exact pronunciation from say King Tut's time um, or King Ramses's time, uh, which I actually did do for the mummy movies. So I, I reconstructed the pronunciations there, which are set right about that time, the reign of Seti I, the father of Ramses II. Right. Um, and so that's exactly when we have all this evidence for pronunciation. So then what you can do is take those names and names in ancient Egyptian, like Ramses or the Yamashesa, is actually a, um, uh, a little sentence. So it means raw, bore, or engendered him. And so you get conjugation of verbs and all sorts of grammatical points from that is these names as well. So you can take all of that evidence for a small number of words and structures and things. You can check it against Coptic and reconstruct things like vowel shifts and so on. And there's some other evidence. There's some names that were transcribed into Greek, ancient Egyptian names that give us a sense there uh, in the you know, 400s BC into Persian uh, earlier than that. And so you can trace the development of the language uh, over time and reconstruct something that's a pretty plausible um, pronunciation. I mean, I, I've always thought of it as if, if you were actually transported back into ancient Egyptian times or through a Stargate into and talking to descendants of ancient Egyptians, you'd speak with like a horrible accent, but they could understand you. Right. <laughs> and, and vice versa, right? Because, you know, it's, it's not exact, but it's pretty good. And certainly much better than Egyptological pronunciations, which are just super flat. Like, and think of the difference between Ramses and Liam, Sesa. So right. you lose the accent, you lose the pace of it. You also lose the music of it, which is something that I actually, yeah, I'd, and I just happened to study all of this because uh, 
a couple of professors, one who sadly passed away in an early casualty of the AIDS epidemic uh, in the late 80s. Uh, but then he was replaced by another professor who was interested in exactly this question of how was ancient Egyptian pronounced. And so I work with graduate students who were constantly doing, we call it vocalization. So uh, doing these reconstructed pronunciations. And, and I took seminars from professors who were explained how it was done and everything else. So it, as it happens, when the Stargate people then, you know, contacted me and said, oh, we have this idea. Um, and can you do this? I said, oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, right. it's easy. And you can see how the main conceit of the film, right, which is, you know, the Egyptologist character played by James Spader goes to this other planet and it doesn't initially understand what people are saying, but then figures it out once he works out the vowels. Uh, was that your right like, contribution? That I wrote that line. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they, you know, it, it works really well because that's really plausible. If you, yeah. you know, if you were transported and people were pronouncing ancient Egyptian correctly, you know, and with vowels and accent and everything else, you would actually uh, be, you know, scratching your head to start with and the, until you realized, and if you're a brilliant linguist like Daniel Jackson is supposed to be, um, I probably couldn't do that. One of my professors could for sure do it, though. He, he, he was absolutely amazing with language. So but, the, uh, the language that the Abedonians use in terms of the vowels mm -hmm. is, is an educated guess based on their circumstances and the, times that have, the amount of time that has passed, correct? Yeah, so it, okay. it's... It, and so what I did was I created a, a kind of hybrid of different phases okay. of the language um, to sort of simulate a language that had come over at a very early stage in the history of the language. Okay. But then it continued to evolve along similar lines that we see ancient Egyptian evolve. Wow. Um, so then I used those. I mean, the core evidence is that that's that pronunciation that we have that dates from about 1400 to um, 1000 BCE, uh, where we have all these cuneiform documents and then Coptic as the baseline later on. Uh, and then just, you know, what Egyptologists have been able to figure out using some uh, ideas from linguistics and uh, other tricks, uh, comparative languages. If you want to compare between ancient Egyptian and other ancient and modern languages and figure out how they fit in terms of language families and just the structure of the language itself, uh, you really need that. Also, ancient, Egyptian, ancient Egyptians were really fond of punning. And you <laughs> really? can't, yeah, yeah. You can tell so, that? Like, when it's in translation, you totally don't get it, right? Because it's, you know, it's an English word and it's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily rhyme or whatever else. Right. Or, you know, and, uh, and, but if you reconstruct the pronunciations, you can get a real appreciation for the ancient oh, Egyptian sense of humor. <laughs> that's, that's cool. What so an interesting byproduct of the, of the analysis. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then, yeah, the one thing, one thing I still remember vividly on the set of Stargate, um, it was actually a scene that was truncated in the final version of the film, but it's when uh, Hatsuf, the father of the young lady, freaks out when uh, Daniel Jackson, sort of being a gentleman, sort of tries, tries to return to her. her. Yeah, exactly. He, he like loses <laughs> her. And that was originally a, a really long, I mean, still great, but it was a really long sort of rant where he's going, oh my God, no, no. <laughs> so, and I remember sitting on the set, you know, with my little headphones on, listening to the dialogue and suddenly ancient Egyptian literally came alive to me and I could sort of hear the music of it. And it was really became a living language, even though I, you know, been, we've been doing these vocalizations before we've been reconstructing the pronunciation, the seminars I was right. taking. 
it's not the same as having you know an actor who's speaking at you know in a normal speaking pace with emotion in the context of a scene and these amazing sets that they had uh costumes and everything else and you know it's part of the plot of the film and all of that it just really brought it to life i, I still vividly remember that moment when the language came alive to me and i yeah, I hope that people, yeah, especially people who know the language, uh, you know, have had a similar experience. And I, I know it, it has become a sort of Egyptology cult classic. Well, I, I mean, when you have folks like Millie Avital and Alexis yeah. Cruz and Eric Avari, I mean, you yeah, can't yeah, lose. Exactly. Eric, I, the, I mean, the, half of the believability is the uh, is his precision with, with what you gave him. And the other half yeah. is his comedic timing. It's yeah. it's sometimes subtle, but it's so funny. <laughs> He's just like, what? What? You don't want her? Take her? Yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> Jeez. Exactly. Oh man. Yeah, and I, I work with him a lot, and he was uh, he was really great, and as were um, Alexis and uh, Millie as well, I and mean, they were all wonderful to work with, and the uh, the other actors, well. With the exception of Jay Davidson, we can talk about that if you like. But <laughs> he had his own, yeah, absolutely. Before yeah, yeah. we get into that, I I want to know why this field. What what in your childhood inspired mm-hmm. you, or wh- where was the the pivot point that said for you, this is what I want to do with my life? Yeah, so I, I can I can give you that exact moment, and it was when I was maybe ten years old, oh. um, and it was between I think it was between the. It was either between the fourth and the fifth grade or fifth and the sixth grade. Um, the local PTA had organized this kind of uh, summer school, but informal, you know, with just members of the PTA who had an enthusiasm, would teach about little mini course on whatever that was. And there was someone in our community who was an amateur archaeologist. You know, they'd been on digs. They weren't a professional and they collected antiquities and things. And so they had a bunch of us in to talk about archaeology and I just got hooked on archaeology, but then for ancient Egypt, when she talked about King Tutankhamun's tomb, uh, that really fascinated me. And it, you know, partly it's the stuff, you know, the material from the tomb is just incredible. I've the mask is one of the most extraordinary things I've yeah, ever exactly. seen in person. Man, they guarded it like a hawk when I was in yes. the Museum of Cairo. <laughs> You yeah, couldn't take yeah. a picture of it, nothing. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, and all that jewelry in that same room, you know, all that jewelry with the yeah. incredible detail and all the other objects from the tomb. I mean, just, just amazing. Amazing. But what ended up really hooking me was the fact that Howard Carter literally stepped back in time when he stepped into the tomb. So he was, you know, the first person to gaze upon all of that, you know, for 3,000 years. And but the one of the interesting things is what he was looking upon is the sort of remains of tomb robbing because there were a couple of times the tomb was broken into it was mostly intact and the king's body was intact, yeah. uh, but the tomb had been rooted through basically looking for valuables, uh, gold and other other things that could be easily converted and uh, and people could make a profit of without it tra- anybody being able to trace it back you know, mm-hmm. um, and one of the things that stuck with me is is how what that says about not so much Tutankhamun, but the tomb robbers. Because you can look and you can start seeing the logic of how they approached a tomb like that. Where there, you know, there would have been security in the valley at that time, so they must have been nervous. You can sort of put yourself in their place. You know, they got 
oil lamps guttering. They got these weird kind of fantastical animal dead heads and these weird things. And they got to be thinking about spirits and curses and things like this. Yeah. Uh, although there wasn't really a curse in the tomb, but nevertheless, there were, you know, there were spiritual consequences. And there are superstitious people. Kind of so yeah, exactly. So. And there were legal consequences too. That's like, true. You know, if you, you were caught robbing a royal tomb, you met a very unpleasant end. And so they must've been nervous scrabbling around looking for valuables that they could break in, get inside, come out quick. And at some point, something must've happened in the last episode of Tomb Robbery. Um, either they had a lookout posted, if they were smart, they did. And the lookout shouted down into the tomb, cheese at the cops, you know, and they all ran out and bumped into one another. But somebody dropped a, a, like a, just a scrap of cloth that was full of gold rings. And, uh, and it, it was right next to the door. And you know what happened when the police were sort of cleaning up after things, they picked it up tossed it in the nearest box and it, it, the whole approach to cleaning up the tomb was kind of like you know you pull up your carpet and you sweep the stuff underneath they you sort of cut <laughs> things away and made it look neat and tidy uh and just well, don't bother with the rest but you know the each one of these rings is uh absolutely a gorgeous work of art I- itself but the tomb robbers were only interested in to melt it down for gold and so I thought this is really interesting how you can tell, you know, you can tell something about Tutankhamun's life and the nature of power and, and wealth in ancient Egypt, but you can also tell about the underside of Egyptian society. It's like how, you know, what the tomb robbers were after and so on. Mm. Um, so that idea that you can, you know, step back in time and you can tell stories about people who've really been forgotten from history, like these tomb robbers. Um, and uh, all of that fascinated me. And then ancient Egypt, just because I'm um, such a remarkable civilization, but also such a rich source of evidence. You know, we have all these texts and art, uh, monuments, but also the places where ordinary people lived, you know, the tombs that or- ordinary people built and were buried in, and all these things you can do to tell about people's lives. Uh, and I just kept kept at it and uh, you know, ended up going to uh, undergraduate at, at Berkeley when a professor took me to Egypt to work on a project and that kind of you know set me on my course uh, and then uh, in graduate school you know continued continued with it and then was lucky enough to get a position uh, at UCSB as a professor so uh, so well, yeah what has been um, some of the more delightful aspects of your career aside from you know, getting to consult on these blockbusters, you know, um, any, any particular, uh, uh, finds that you've, that you've been able to, to take, to take part in, in terms of discoveries over there. Um, anything that's, that you have been associated with that's like, wow, I've got to pinch myself every now and then knowing that I was a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have, I, I do direct a dig along with a couple of colleagues in Northern Sudan. So I got interested in Nubia, which is the Southern part of Egypt and Northern part of Sudan. And uh, our excavation is, is revealed, um, you know, all sorts of interesting things about Nubia that, uh, and I guess one of the most gratifying things about that is that we've been able to show how uh, Nubia, which has tended to be thought of as in the shadow of Egypt and, you know, sort of everything good in Nubia is seen as coming from Egypt. Mm. Uh, but in fact, what we've been able to show is that there's a real back and forth. And so we're excavating in an ancient Egyptian colony that was built about 
that was in, you know sort of established around 1450 BCE. And it continues to the end of what the Egyptologists call the New Kingdom, so when King Tut ruled and so on, at about 1000 BCE. And then the colony split away from Egypt, and these colonial communities continued to thrive as multi-ethnic communities. So we're looking at how the, the two cultures kind of interwove and entangled together and produced something new. Um, and then that eventually produced a series of kings who ruled Egypt for a while and then produced a remarkable uh, kingdom that la in, in the northern part of Sudan and the southern part of Egypt that lasted for around a thousand years after that. Uh, making these sort of, you look at this, their monuments and temples and things like that, and you go, oh, yeah, that, that looks Egyptian, but you start looking closer, and you realize, oh, no, they're playing with it. I kind of like Stargate, actually. You know, they're, <laughs> they're transforming these Egyptian themes and to suit their own ideas about kingship and queenship and all this other stuff. Well, it lasted the coolest... for so long. I mean, we we, yeah. we look at time completely yeah, different, exactly. differently. A lot of us Westerners look at it from like yeah, yeah. the last 2,000 years, you know. Mm -hmm. But I mean, so much is, I suspect, just lost to time. So yeah. much information. But yeah, please, exactly. go ahead. Well, and, and archaeology is kind of like... Um, uh, a murder mystery in a way not not some, sometimes literally it's murder but normally not but it, you have all these pieces to a puzzle that you're trying to figure out this is why archaeology archaeologists tend to love mysteries and I don't know if you know it but Agatha Christie actually married an archaeologist the guy I did not know that line. and she okay. wrote a couple of archaeological mysteries is, is in her career that are really fun to read as an archaeologist um, but but it's that, that sort of putting puzzles together. And it's like you're, you know, you're putting it together a jigsaw puzzle, but you know, somebody threw out half the pieces. And you'll <laughs> and never get them back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you threw in a few pieces from someplace else and you've got to sort it all out and figure out what's going on. So it's a, it's a really cool intellectual exercise. But, um, uh, but, it, it, but it, it, you know, one of the things is a, an, an Egyptologist named William Matthew Flinders Petrie that, uh, Kind of founded modern archaeology along with a few other forward-thinking people about a hundred years ago and he said that archaeology is about saving lives to bring back into human consciousness uh, these you know the, these people who've been forgotten from history and you do that through the material record through archaeology you can't you know texts if they're not mentioned in texts and inscriptions you know, they're lost but if you uh, through these objects, you can see the person who used it. You can see the artisan who crafted like a little scarab or other things. And you can bring something of their lives back, uh, you know, by doing this. And I really, mm. that, that's what kind of drives me. But the absolute coolest thing I found is the burial of a soldier uh, from about 700 BCE, the time uh, period when uh, Nubian kings were ruling as pharaohs in Egypt and they were fighting in the Levant. Actually, they were allies of King Hezekiah of Judah against the Assyrians. And uh, so it's a really dynamic time. And we found the burial of this one soldier. And it shows this interesting mix of Egyptian and Nubian features, uh, but also included all this really cool stuff. And the coolest was he had this uh, cosmetic box that was with, filled with little vessels for perfume and razors so he could shave so I mean, here's this big burly guy I and mean, you know that from the skeleton you can tell if a guy someone's burly by looking uh -huh. at muscle attachments because you the more you bulk out the big bigger your bones get basically uh -huh. and but you know when he stepped out man he was he was like perfumed and oiled and you found his toiletries 
exactly we did and dude wanted to look fine when he went out we also had these amazing little faience vessels faience is a kind of glazed self-glazing ceramic material brightly colored uh and one of them has these little statuettes and the statuettes are only like this big but incredibly detailed of this little dwarf god bess uh who was super popular in egypt but became really popular in nubia uh and uh, a little lid with a frog on it and it would have held a perfume or something like this, but it is the most amazing item. And there were wow. two other fans vessels that were also astonishing, but these are just incredible, incredibly beautiful works of art. And they're as good as it gets for that material. And it's the sort of thing you might find in a royal tomb and you wouldn't be surprised that it would be in there. So this guy had connections too. Uh, and they're, they are by far and away the most beautiful, extraordinary things that I found. It also shows that Nubia was not a backwater as some Egyptologists have characterized it, but they were right up with the latest stuff. Uh, and it was a very cosmopolitan society. I and mean, this is the kind of thing, you know, you, you know, it's not clear they may have made it locally, but it's, it's playing off of similar kinds of objects that were circulating among the wealthiest people, movers and shakers throughout the Mediterranean world. And these you know, Nubian elites, uh, like our guy was probably a military officer uh, and kings and whatnot. Uh, they were, you know, part of that and not just consuming, but I think they were really participating in it. So this, this tomb and, and this tells, something, tells us a lot about the life of this guy, but then it has implications for uh, the role of Nubia in world affairs and showing that it's not just dependent on Egypt, but in fact, at that point, around 700 BCE, uh, they were driving the agenda and they were wow. pulled into this. So, I mean, it is the most incredible thing. And two mobbers had broken into it and they took away his head. So we don't have his head, sadly. They were probably going after some gold jewelry around his neck, which disappeared. Um, but uh, it was a kind of vaulted tomb and the vaulting collapsed over it. And and apparently the tomb robbers just went, oh yeah, we got the gold. So do you want to dig it out and see what else is in there? And yeah, we got the good stuff. I love lazy looters. You know, they're, it's wonderful. <laughs> um, and so they, they left, everything else in the tomb was intact. And so just amazing record of the life of this guy who wow. you know, otherwise you, we wouldn't know about if we hadn't found him. And it tells this whole story about how co connected Nubia was uh, to the world. Also, yet you know, the the world of of northeast africa as well so uh so that's that's been really cool and that's definitely the coolest thing i've found that is <laughs> so that is it's so much <clears throat> has got to be left buried out there and oh, yeah. i have to ask before we get to our alien raw um <laughs> do you think what what is in your mind the likelihood that we've been visited that that our ancient cultures have been influenced by by something extraterrestrial in your opinion yeah so in my opinion it's fantasy it's fantasy <laughs> so there's, yeah there's no and, and more science fiction um actually probably more appropriately science fiction which is fine uh, but uh but eric von daniken you know who inspired uh stargate and roland was in particular uh, a big fan dean a bit too um but they, you know, Eric von Daniken himself admitted that he was writing fiction okay. <laughs> at one point when pressed <laughs> uh, because, you know, he uh, he fabricated some things and exaggerated some other things uh, in writing his books. Uh, and and in fact, it, you know, there's 
there's no reason to suppose that anything that people achieved in the past uh, were, you know, was the result of aliens. When we, for example, the Great Pyramids of Egypt, which are you know, one of the classic things, how could anybody make them? And I, having been there many times, I, I can totally understand why you might think that, because they are incredibly huge monuments. Uh, my favorite thing is to stand next to a Great Pyramid and in the middle of one of one side of it and just look up and it's yeah it's, it's a great big triangle yeah exactly <laughs> it's, it's lots it's, and lots of rocks it's so awe-inspiring and the rocks are taller yeah. than us i mean yeah. you can't climb on one easily you know yeah. how would they but anyway okay so yeah it's, but it's i mean fantasy. yeah they, it's they use sledges ramps and we yeah. know all of this yeah. i mean there's good documentation for it uh, they recently found uh, a whole set of documents that relate to the construction of the Great Pyramids at a port in on the Red Sea um, that are just now being published. This is only just a few years ago. Wow. There's a lot of the logistics of it. So the big thing about building the pyramids was not the technology so much. It was the logistics. So how do you get all that stone there? Most of the stone came from right nearby. And right. Each, those big blocks, they're, they're, don't get me wrong, like you say, they're they're big and impressive and would be hard to climb. But you know, the average block weighs about two and a half tons, which sounds like a lot. That's it, not as much as I expected. Yeah, no, it's not bad. There are a few of the internal, like in the the burial chambers inside, are lined in hard stones okay. like granite and diorite and so on. And those are um, big, so those are maybe 40, 50, 60 tons. Um, but even then, we know Egyptians could could we have documents and we have images of Egyptians moving big statues and things that would be about that same weight. Um, so they had the technology, basic technology to, you know, quarry the stone and everything else and move it. So it's like, how do you assemble the workforce? How do you make sure everything's going smoothly and the stones are going up into the pyramid? So it's a lot about logistics, getting food, you know, equipment, supplies, slave labor, managing the labor. Yeah. Actually, they probably weren't slaves. They were you don't think so. Labor. No, there, there would have been a professional core. Okay. Um, but then also there would have been probably um, seasonal labor that would have been kind of like um, military conscription. So there was the equivalent of a draft in ancient Egypt, but it was not just for the military, it was for public works and other, other things, ex, you know, trade expeditions or quarrying expeditions going out into the desert and stuff like that. Uh, they would, you know, they would work with a local leader you would assemble a group of people and you didn't have a lot of choice, but you were paid and clothed and everything else. So, uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't exactly free, but, but it wasn't exactly, you know, the people weren't actually enslaved. They were just okay. uh, in this kind of draft uh, system that we call the corvée, which okay. is uh, just a way of, of mobilizing labor. Uh, wow. And uh, the leaders of the local areas where these people were drawn from came with them. And we have some documents from later than the Great Pyramid was being built, but other similar projects uh, where the those guys are complaining to, you know, the or, pe- you know the central government that hey, my guys, you know, my guys' clothes are getting ragged. You need to send us more. So they were, you know, hey, people were looking at, yeah, they're just prosaic stuff like that. You need to send this stuff now. So they had advocates, uh, you know, who were keeping track and making sure. Um, and the cemetery nearby shows, you know, fairly high incidence of things like broken bones, as you might expect. Sure. Um, uh, a big construction project like that, but um, a really successful rate of healing. So wow. uh, they had medical attention, uh, which, you know, the best it could for that time, but yeah. things like setting bones and just basic stuff. Um, and so they seem to have been relatively well cared for. Uh, and we have 
a lot of evidence for feeding them and everything else from a huge wow. settlement that was found next to the the Great Pyramids. Um, so that we, you know, we really know, understand and know, and you can say that for pretty much everything around the world that's been attributed to aliens. Um, we, we have the evidence, uh, we, you know, there's still some debate as to the exact configuration of ramps and whatever else for building the Great Pyramid, for example, but, uh, but there's no question that, that uh, the ancient Egyptians were capable of it. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Jay Davidson, our villain, the other, yes. the other, uh, the other actor who was, um, uh, whose whose words were brought to life by by what you said by what you provided, and also mm-hmm. a, a fair bit of uh, post production, yes. which uh, Dean revealed to uh, uh, to me at least uh, uh, about a year and a half ago was not the original plan. No. <laughs> um, tell us about working with Jay on this, bringing bringing the villain who wasn't originally raw; it was a minion. Uh, yeah, exactly. to life. Yeah, so that's a very good question. Yeah, so so that you know, Jay was um, he was really good at at playing himself. Basically, that's why he he got the Oscar nomination in the Crying Game. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was very. I mean, he had this amazing presence in terms of that kind of androgynous look, which is what they were going for with Stargate, which which also in a really interesting way, I think, um, queered the the production right by creating this kind of sexual tension between mm-hmm. spader and davidson and and mm-hmm. you know even though he's a villain uh he he really you know the plot really circles around him there's a lot of levels to play yeah exactly yeah. exactly so i think i think that in that aspect his performance added a lot but um in terms of acting he you know he's not a, was not a professional actor he was picked up uh, you know for his look and and as i say to basically play himself in the crying game and he had serious issues with addiction uh-huh. um and so but he i mean he, he really did try <laughs> um i worked with him a lot uh and i would run run through his lines and uh and he just could not remember his lines all the other actors did fine um but um but he would freeze on set so suddenly you know there was a moment when i became the most important person uh on the set uh because i had to get him through his lines and so at one point they had me in a little sound booth and they had a sort of earwig in his ear and i would feed him his lines then roland roland had told his great stories with looking at the you know at the 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 shot and and uh, Jay Jay walks up this dramatic moment, tight down on his face, and he says, "Stuart, louder," because he's British, so he has a British accent. And again, Roland, really cool guy. Both both Roland and Dean, the whole crew really was was great, and that's a testament to to Roland and and Dean and and the other production crew and how they ran the set. Um, and I, I talked to a lot of people and they, you know, they were really loyal to their, their, their regular, you know, the reg- people they regularly work with. And, and so he, you know, he just went, okay, we need to find something else. So he ended up settling on cue cards. So I would pronounce the line, you know, work, work with Jay on the line. And then I would ask him to transcribe it into British English pronunciation. Cause you know, how you write it down. Yeah, something different. he would recognize. Yeah, exactly. So, and so they made these big cue cards. Um, but even then, they had to like point to the line whenever he was supposed to say it. <laughs> and so in the end, it, it just came across, I mean, it, it just didn't come across convincingly. Uh, and also, Jay didn't quite have the presence to be menacing. And so that's when they added all this stuff into 
post-production uh, where they uh, they overdubbed his his dialogue uh, and uh, but they also added in that whole subplot of him being inhabited by you know the gold the alien that was not in the original film he was he was actually still playing Ray the sun god but he wasn't really an alien he wasn't himself an alien he was kind of a stooge for the aliens um, okay and, and playing god you know with the help of technology and everything else which I thought actually was a really cool plot <laughs> right. One of, one of the things I'm also interested in, in, in terms of my academic life, is empires and the ancient Egyptian empire and the later Nubian empire and, and the dynamics of power and all that kind of thing. And it was a beautiful sort of illustration of how you use power and ideology and theology and religion to dominate. Manipulate people. Well, we see that with exactly. the Abedonians, you know? Yeah. They're yeah. hiding under masks and they're like, they're shocked mm-hmm. to find out that they're human. And exactly. that's the crux in the... In the feature yeah, yeah. film, I mean, in in the series, Jaffar are walking around with human faces, but in the mm. movie, they're shocked by that. Yeah, you know, and it's what pushes Kasuf over the edge. Yeah, yeah. And his glorious yeah. moment running down the hill. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's a there are a whole bunch of things, and it's partly my influence, but it's partly you know Roland and Dean having good instincts, and their art people who are great. Um, but there are a lot of things that really resonate well with ancient Egypt. And one of the things is the masked gods. Yeah. And this was a common thing in ancient Egyptian rituals is for priests to wear masks and impersonate deities in religious rituals. And you can think of them as kind of mystery plays as well, that mm-hmm. uh, they would reenact a mythological scene for at a big festival time or something like this. Um, so that worked really well. That whole scene and that, I mean, the sets were amazing. That whole temple facade where the, you know, the pyramid was CGI, but the temple facade right. was full scale. It was as big as a temple in Egypt. And that whole scene where they're, you know, uh, Daniel Jackson is supposed to execute yep. his fellows. I mean, that, you know, it, of course, it's space aliens and everything else. But, you know, it's exactly the same thing that would have happened in ancient Egypt. We, you know, this, the, typically those big pylons are decorated with scenes holding enemy prisoners and getting ready to execute them and they probably actually performed those rituals on a small scale uh, and executed prisoners or perhaps high level uh, you know uh, foreign uh, military opponents and that kind of thing who they captured in you know in these special rituals and so that idea of these masked individuals and the big crowd below and this you know demonstration of power is totally resonates with sort of ancient Egypt and the you know how these temples function as uh, means of the king showing that in this case of course the god Ra although in that case he has a mask of right. Jackson, which is kind of cool um, and and you know the king demonstrating that he has the power and he's destroying these chaotic elements these enemies that threaten the social order. Uh, and so that enactment is 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 very cool. So there are lots of points in the in the film where you have these really interesting resonances with ancient Egypt, uh, you know, kind of transformed in the the context of space aliens. So it doesn't have to be exact, uh, which is it just, the, it know, just nice. has to be in the right direction for a lot exactly, of yeah, and sincere. Yeah, that's it. So. And that's that was the cool thing is that they were very interested in doing exactly that. They wanted it to resonate. They wanted it to work. Um, and again, they drew on my expertise uh, quite a lot, but but I think they really did have good instincts. Uh, like there's a, a great costume. I, I, I have a PowerPoint. I'm looking at it now, where I've got a picture inserted in it. It's like one of one of the nice pictures of me 
uh, with uh, my headset on and Jay um, <laughs> working with him on the uh, uh, on his dialogue. And he's standing there, but he's wearing this that wonderful costume where he has the horns and the sun. Yes, yeah, the the Hathor. Um, yeah, exactly. The, the cow. That, yeah, 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 exactly. And that's a cool thing. I mean, it, it of course highlights the sexual ambiguity, mm-hmm. but it's a sexual ambiguity not just of of you know Ray Rye in the in the film, but it's also how Ray actually worked. Is Ray was the creator, so he embodied both male and female. And his eye, and you have that wonderful eye of Ray image that uh, is runs throughout the film mm-hmm. as well. Well, the eye of Ray was Hathor, uh, the same goddess who wears that iconic, you know, horn and sun disc. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was Ray's enforcer. Um, and there's there's a whole myth about how Hathor went went uh, crazy and started killing everyone because Ray said, you know, Ray Ray was upset with some humans who were not respecting him properly and said, go out and teach him a lesson. And she was about ready to like eat all of humanity um, as a lion. Uh, but then uh, they brewed up a bunch of beer and, and colored it red and told her it was blood. And she drank all the beer and uh, thinking it was, she was drinking the blood of her enemies and, and she got happy and, <laughs> and humanity was saved. So wow, <laughs> nice little myth, but you know, Hathor and Ray are, have this interesting relationship. Um, Daughter and happy. wife. Yeah, daughter and wife, but also I. Uh, ancient Egyptian theology is is very flexible, you know, and and uh, and you have these things where you see, well, is 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 she his daughter? Is she his wife? Is she his I? She's all of those things. Wow. It just depends on the context of where it's at. Stuart, but it resonates really well with that. It's really cool. It's it's extraordinary. Would would you be willing to come back? <laughs> I need more time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would be happy to. I would appreciate that. This this fall, we're doing season three, and I think uh, yeah. uh, this is fascinating stuff. And I've got so many uh, fan questions here for you. I want to throw a few at you really quickly here. Sure. Uh, Lock Watcher, what difference did you see from working on The Mummy compared to working on Stargate? Yeah, so that's a good question. So with Stargate, um, they I was actually involved in uh, pre-production. So I was actually talking to, like, already some of their other people had been talking to me about sets and things, particularly the, um, the dig scene at the beginning, which is actually really good. Uh, partly me, but partly because they wanted to make it right. Yeah. And so I was working with the props guy, Doug Harlocker and, and whatnot. And then I got, got connect contacted by, I think it was Lars or Peter Winther um, contacted me uh, about uh, the film and said, you know, uh, we need Stargate and hieroglyphs. So I did that for them. And we have this great idea to bring you on board. So then they brought me on board. And so I saw an early version of the script. It was, uh, you know, late in pre-production. Uh, but then I was in a number of pre-production meetings, met with the art people and all of that. And then I was actually on the set of the film for probably about three out of a more or less five month shoot. Uh, so anytime people had dialogue, um, I, I, you know, had to be there. And of course, I got paid more, so that was good. I <laughs> <laughs> my daily rate, um, and and so I was very grateful to to James Spader, who always wanted me there whenever he had a line. And of course, he up, you know, Jay Davidson could be a pain. He was always, I have to say, really nice to me. Yeah, um, because I think that you know he knew he was depending on me. You were in um, his corner. Yeah, yeah, exactly he wanted to so. make it work. Yeah, yeah, but but you know it was great because every time he had a line or anything, I had to be there. So there you, uh, you know, so I was hanging out a lot on the set, and I was, but it, you know, I was talking to people. I met with Dean and Roland all the time, 
as they were tweaking the script, I wrote big chunks of dialogue. So they were really keen on getting everything as right as possible. And I think that's because you know, they both had made science fiction films, um, mostly together. And I think they were really interested, you know, they really wanted to make it good science fiction, which has that idea of the suspension of disbelief, right? You, you have one big thing, you know, Stargates, aliens, all of that, and then everything else you make as convincing as possible. So they wanted the language to be right. They wanted the, you know, not a made up language, but a real language and a really ancient Egyptian. Uh, they wanted all, everything else to be as good as possible. So I wrote a whole bunch of uh, Daniel Jackson's dialogue. Anytime he's talking Egyptology, I wrote it basically. And I would give it to him. They would tweak it to suit their needs and whatnot. And, uh, and we'd go forward. Now the mummy movies, it was kind of dialed in. So they gave me the script to comment on, didn't work with any of their set people or artists, art, art people or anything like that. Uh, I made a whole bunch of comments. Uh, and, uh, and then I translated all the dialogue and, and you know, put it into the correct pronunciation or at least uh, you know, our best estimate of the pronunciation for that period. And they made little Berlitz style tapes. I did that for Stargate too. Um, <laughs> but but uh, the only actor I worked with was Arnold Vosloo and briefly with Dwayne Johnson, <laughs> The Rock. Yes. On a fuzzy, fuzzy cell phone call to Mar- somewhere near Marrakesh. <laughs> um, you know, because they decided he should be, he should say something in that iconic scene where he's in the desert. And you yeah. Know, yeah. And so I fed him that line. So okay. <laughs> that was fun. So I like, you know, a couple minutes and he did a beautiful job. Uh, but otherwise it was kind of dialed in. So, um, and they, they, they weren't, you know, they, I think they thought it was a novelty. Um, actually, Eric Avari, who, as you know, was in yes. the first film, saw the script and, uh, and said, oh yeah, this guy's Stuart Smith. You, you got a, you know, got all this ancient Egyptian dialogue. He can do it for you. And he's a cool guy. He's not going to complain or anything. Cause I'm, I would, I love film. And so, and I love science fiction and the mummy genre as well. Uh, and so I was happy, only too happy to, you know, add my expertise to make it a little bit more real as much as I could. But they ignored about half of my advice. So there are a whole bunch of things in the mummy movies that are wrong, like <laughs> five canopic jars, which are the, you know, where they put the mummified internal organs. Yes. Four, I told them four, but I guess they'd made the prop already. I don't know. Um, but one cool thing that I got in was they were going to call the, those desert warriors who were protecting the tombs. They were calling them something like Mumia or something like that. I'm like, no, 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 call them Medje. And Medje were a Nubian group of nomadic desert people who uh, were employed by the Egyptians uh, in the Egyptian military and had a lot of influence on the Egyptian military. By the New Kingdom, they were the police force uh, that uh, guarded the Valley of the Kings. And so here you have this Nubian connection. I love Nubia, so that was great. Right. But, but also it works beautifully because it's set in the New Kingdom. So here you have this group of people who are um, you know, charged with enforcing the, protecting the tomb. So then they transfer that and they're nomadic, you know, desert people. So they transfer that to the city in the desert and maintaining security and keeping people away from the mummy. Uh, it worked wonderfully. So uh, wow. and there are a few other points like that, that uh, where I got little tidbits in here and there but like i said they took about half of my advice on the script and ignored the rest i don't know but the language all actually all turned out really well in spite of the fact that i wasn't there to coach them um they uh, they did a really good job so they took the tapes and whatnot seriously uh which was good they put it to work uh, yeah gate, yeah gate gabber wants to know um uh, do you do you teach any online classes that people can take part in 
Yeah, no, unfortunately, I don't teach uh, don't teach online classes. If you okay. Google me, though, um, I've got a lot of lectures. If you're interested in my research, uh, including actually, I, I gave a, a talk about Stargate. I mean, it's an academic talk. Uh, I'm going to so. link to it. We've, we've already got a link to your website uh, yeah. at the bottom of this uh, uh, conversation, but mm. I will link to that one as well because it's there's a lot of information there and pictures in there yeah. as well. So yeah, it's this is. Um, this is really cool for me to have you on. And I have a number of other questions that I'm going to save uh, for your next uh, visit. Uh, if we can get you back sometime in the fall, make our schedules work. I want to mm-hmm. talk to you about origins. Uh, yeah. I want to talk to you how, about how, you know, one evolved into the other and any tricks that you picked up. Um, mm-hmm. But really quickly though, what was it like working on origins with that cast SGO? Yeah. Oh, that was great too. So, uh, you know, uh, Matt and the Elena, uh, who were the producers, were, yes. were great. They came up, they contacted me and said, are you interested? I said, oh yeah, sure. And they came up and met with me and we had a great chat and we were totally on the same page with everything, which was cool. Um, and they really wanted to replicate the feel of the original film. Um, and the cool thing about it is that like the original film, the language drove the plot. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was really fun to work with and... Um, Oh, the director who's Mercedes. Uh, Mercedes, yeah, who's done the the Star Wars, directing for the Star Wars now, and a whole yep. bunch of other things. Uh, she was great to work with as well, and they they all wanted to get the language right and get the plot right. So, uh, so they took all of my notes, and the actors were great to work with. Um, they all did a wonderful job. I was kind of sad to see the you know the voiceover overlays that goes all the way back to Jay's <laughs> inability to to you know pull it off basically they yeah they um, weren't they, originally going to go with that i was yeah, yeah. and then they, the film came out and it's like oh they went ahead and modulated her voice too so because yeah. there weren't yeah, any glowing eyes shame, they all did a really great job with the you know with just the raw yes footage. I mean, still it's still wonderful anyway but uh but yeah some of the some of the dialogue particularly the the woman whose name eludes me right now um who played um Selkett. yeah her uh, lieutenant yeah, yeah, she was. She was amazing. great. She picked up the language like this, man. Yeah, and, and it was beautiful. Uh, and the other, and which is not to diminish what the other actors did, they all did a wonderful job as well. But some people uh, but have just got that good. ear. I hate people. Yeah, like yeah. I wish I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that was a really fun, you know, low budget, of course, compared to Stargate. But again, a great crew. Um, you know, really a nice set to work on. Um, and very appreciative of what I was giving to them. And I think, you know, that shows in the final uh, production. And I, I liked the, I thought the plot was fun and, you know. I enjoyed it. You know, every, I always, I hate Nazis, just like all archaeologists. Or well, and if you get into the Stargate <laughs> mythology, um, the, yeah. uh, the, the DHD ended up in Berlin. So the, mm. not, the, the Germans would have been involved at some point. So I yeah. always, I always there think that's go. interesting. Yeah, they were very careful to keep canon. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, which was tricky because there's been so much. Helping them do it. Ah, okay. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's a little known fact. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Doctor Smith, this was this was terrific, sir. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Anything uh, that you would like us specifically to be aware of? Anything where we can continue to follow your work? Um, future expeditions. Yeah, so I do. Um, uh, we do have. A, uh, I don't know if you have the the Tumbo site, tumbos.org. Um, which is T-O-M-B-O-S dot O-R-G. Um, and uh, that's Archaeological site. site. Yes. 
so that's our project blog. So if you want to get a sense of what we've been doing and, and the kind of work we're doing in Sudan, um, that's the place to look. So we got the blogs from the past seasons. Uh, and then we, uh, once we get started again, we probably won't be in the field for another couple of years, uh, but we'll, we'll start up getting some reports in from the field and then, uh, and, you know, we'll be continuing to add literature and things. And we always translate everything into Arabic, which is important so that, I see. Um, you know, the Sudanese and Egyptians, if they're interested, can, uh, you know, can read what we, we've been up to. And we're trying more and more to engage with the local communities and uh, both of archaeologists, but also just the folks in the village where we stay. We've always done that a bit, but now we've been working more and more uh, with trying to, you know, communicate with them and, yeah. you know, what they're interested in. Of in course. terms of our work and what we can do to, you know, help them out. So we, we've worked with schools a lot, providing with materials, educational materials and whatnot. So this is terrific. Thank you so much for your time, sir. I oh, really you're very appreciate welcome. you coming on. All right. Well, I will be in touch with you soon. Okay, great. Thank you yeah. so much for your time. You're welcome. Be well. Dr. Stuart Tyson Smith who's the uh, Egyptology consultant on uh, the, the Stargate feature film and Stargate Origins. And he is a professor at, uh, at University of Southern California, Santa Barbara. So but his uh, information is linked below. And I'll add this uh, Tombos website as well. Rachel Luttrell is coming up momentarily here. Uh, I'm going to just abridge this. Uh, if you enjoyed this content, please consider clicking uh, that like button and sharing this uh, with a Stargate friend. We've got Rachel coming up in just a moment. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate, and I will see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producers are Darren Sumner and Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The moderators are Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design is by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots. The webmaster is Frederick Marcoux. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Frederick Marcoux. For inquiries, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.